Hello and welcome to Harris in Conversation, our Harris Federation teaching and learning podcast brought to you from London. Our series aims to bring important and relevant teaching and learning conversations to you, whether you're a teacher, a school leader, or simply an educational enthusiast. My name is Ollie Blagden, and today I'm joined by two very special returning guests, the wonderful Amy Staniforth and Stuart Pryke, authors of the best-selling Ready to Teach series. So, a little bit about Stuart and Amy. Stuart is an assistant principal for teaching and learning in a secondary school in Norfolk. He's worked with Oak National Academy and the Training Partnership as part of GCSE English in Action. Stuart has spoken at several educational conferences, including Pixel, and is a keen contributor to the English online community. Amy is Vice Principal for Quality of Education in a secondary school in Norfolk and enjoys supporting the professional development of other teachers. She facilitates both the MPQLT for a multi-academy trust and designs and delivers a bespoke curriculum middle leaders development programme for serving and aspiring curriculum leaders. Amy has spoken at several educational conferences, including Pixel, and enjoys contributing to the online Team English community. Now, today, we're here to discuss Amy and Stuart's latest ready-to-teach book, Ready to Teach, A Christmas Carol, a follow-up to their hugely successful 2020 Macbeth instalment. Critics including Alex Quigley, Mary Myatt and Zoe Enza describe the latest book as intriguing, stimulating, comprehensive, transformative and essential read for teachers of A Christmas Carol. So, what's the book about and why should you be getting hold of a copy yourself as soon as possible? Let's find out. Hello, Amy and Stuart. Thank you so much for joining us again. Hello, it's lovely to, to be here. Thank you for having us. You're so welcome. And evidently, we can't get enough of you both. We first met a couple of years ago now when we first promoted your book on the podcast. You've then since spoken at one of our conferences. I think it's fair to say that the world needs more Amy and Stuart. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I can't believe it's been two years, though, since we were last on. Like, time has really flown, hasn't it? Yeah, time has flown. And I think at that point, we were actually mid-lockdown, weren't we? So there you go. Different world. Yes, yeah, I think we were. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's, that's transformed, hasn't it, time-wise? So if we just go back one year ago, around this time last year, Stuart and Amy shared their manuscript for Ready to Teach a Christmas Carol with me for review. And that was a real privilege, by the way. So thank you again, just to be able to have a sneak peek. All the critical praise that you just heard is completely justified. So let's just start at the beginning. The book is a follow-up to your first Ready to Teach instalment on Macbeth, which was a huge hit with English teachers. What was it like returning for round two? For me, I think um, it was a little bit daunting, actually. You know, the the Ready to Teach Macbeth book had been so well received. And Amy and I always joke that we're very um, kind of anxious people by nature. And, and the, the kind of anxiety surrounding that first book, would it be well received? Would it be liked? Would it be used? You know, that was that was very real. And so the fact that people seemed to enjoy it was was amazing. And we're still kind of staggered and blown away by the feedback we get from that book. So, you know, returning to a, a second one was was daunting because we wanted it to be um, just as useful as the first. We wanted teachers to, to really um, find it useful. And, and also, you know, just like the Macbeth, the fact that A Christmas Carol is such a well-loved story, we really wanted to be able to, to do it justice. So, 
you know, yeah, daunting is the word that I would use at first. And then once we got back into the kind of swing, swing of things, yeah, it was it was better. Um, mm. Amy, what do you think? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think um, because the process of editing and then publishing Ready to Teach Macbeth was kind of the most uh, recent bit in our mind in terms of the process, whereas actually here we were back to square one starting again. I think one thing we found quite interesting is um, when we wrote Ready to Teach Macbeth, a fair chunk of the time was thinking about actually what's the format of this, how are we structuring this, where are we going to put, how subtitles are going to be working and all of those kind of, um, those nuts and bolts to try and make the book useful. Whereas by the time we got to Ready to Teach A Christmas Carol, we almost had this sort of template ready where we could kind of go off what we'd done before um so the structuring of it was uh, was a little bit more straightforward this time but actually for me the thing that I, I love the most about returning and, and writing another book is to have been had the opportunity to, to really get into detail with that kind of literary criticism and the research involved in in writing one of these books um it was a real joy to unpick and discover a text in a new way like we had done uh, with Macbeth before I guess it's just that immersion back into the world of literature, isn't it? That must be so rewarding. I suppose just for any listeners who aren't familiar with either of your two instalments yet, could you just briefly explain what the premise of the books are? What is it they set out to do? And you mentioned the structure as well. I think that's a really key part of the books. What is their purpose and, and how how did you arrive at the decision to, to make them the way you did? We talked a lot. We, we we spoke for several years actually about about what we might be able to contribute to the English community. And and one thing we reflected on quite often was the fact that you'd often go to one place for your subject knowledge, another place for your resourcing, another place for your kind of subject pedagogy. And what we wanted to try and do is bring those three aspects together into one book. So the way it's structured is we work chronologically through a text, and we look at what it is that teachers might need to know to be able to teach that successfully in terms of the subject knowledge. Then we present a range of ideas that teachers might use to teach it. And it's not a a kind of hard and fast, you have to teach things in this order. You can use none of the resources, you can adapt them. You know, they're there for teachers to to use in their own classroom in their own ways. But there is a collection of resources there that support the subject knowledge that we've been discussing. And then the book ends with some subject pedagogy, linking it back really to strategies we've used in the book. Um, So we talk a lot about vocabulary instruction, for example, in Ready to Teach a Christmas Carol. So one of our whys, you know, why teach it in this way, links to the power of really high quality vocabulary instruction in the classroom. So the idea is it brings together subject knowledge, resources and classroom strategies into one neat package for a Christmas carol. And I think also just to to kind of add to that, um, you know, we really wanted it as that kind of one stop shop for teaching Macbeth and teaching a Christmas carol. Um, So you could read it from cover to cover, but you can also just dip into it for your needs. So obviously Amy and I have a way that we would teach the text, but that might not be relevant to um, another teacher who perhaps just goes in with a visualiser and a pen and and annotates in front of a class. So, you know, you can kind of dip into it as well in in terms of the bits you need, whether you would like resources or whether you would like that subject knowledge and, and kind of approach the book that way as well the book is clearly comprehensive and in an ideal world we would spend all day talking about dickens and a christmas carol and i would love that but i wondered the next best thing would you mind each of you sharing with our listeners one moment from the novella that you really enjoyed writing about and i appreciate that must be hard to narrow down but maybe just giving our teachers a bit of a sneak peek such a good question. One thing that we did a lot of when we wrote this and when we wrote the first book actually was ringing each other up and saying I've just read this about this particular aspect of the book did you know this before and kind of sharing in that um, both being kind of joyful nerds I think the Teach Development Trust would put it um, about the book. So this is a great question because there's so much that we uncovered as we were reading and researching. 
Um, I think for me, um, we know it's quite well documented that Dickens, he said himself that he wrote this book in a six week period in what he called a white hot fury um, because he was so incensed by what he'd read and what he'd seen. Um, the working conditions of women and children. But there is so much depth in what he does. He plums kind of almost infinite depths in terms of um, the references and allusions that he makes. So for me, I think the thing that I found particularly interesting was in um, Stave 2, so Scrooge's childhood, the ghost of Christmas past, takes Scrooge to his old schoolhouse. And there we see a young Scrooge reading books and adult Scrooge lists off really quickly, literally the, the work of two or three sentences, loads of book characters that he's imagining that he can see. And when I've taught that, when I first started teaching this novella, I sometimes thought about the fact that, um, okay, so we've got these book characters, it shows that Scrooge maybe liked reading as a child. We play on that bit in the classroom of the fact that he was so lonely as a child that he's imagining these book characters. But then when you actually look at each of those individual book characters, they have real relevance to the story that Dickens is telling. So one of the um, characters that, uh, Scrooge remarks about is Ali Baba, um, so from Ali Baba and the Forty Fee Thieves, and it was a really popular book actually when Dickens was writing. So um, it had been published in the 18th century in French and then translated, um, but it was it was really well known. And uh, I guess if listeners aren't familiar with the story, um, Ali Baba discovers a cave of full filled with riches that you can only access by using the phrase "open sesame," and Ali Baba has a brother called Kasim who marries into this really rich family. He discovers that this cave full of riches exists and then he's murdered by the 40 thieves in the title of the story. And actually, we get this sense in A Christmas Carol of the idea of familial loss because um, Scrooge, of course, has lost his sister Fan. Um, we've got the avarice of Kasim, who wants all of this wealth for himself. And we see that borne out in Scrooge. But actually, when we think about Ali Baba himself, I think that's the most interesting bit for me. So in the story, Ali Baba is the only person who has access to this cave full of wonder and riches. And all he takes for himself is a single bag of gold. Um, and by the end of the story, he's the only person left who knows this cave exists. But there isn't ever any suggestion that he takes or spends any more than this single bag of gold. He just sits on this really substantial wealth throughout the, the whole rest of the story. And I think the fact that Ali Baba can can get this real great wealth using this magic word, really plays into Scrooge's own desire. He wants more than anything, more and more wealth. And I think, you know, if Scrooge could generate that wealth automatically, then he'd be all the happier for it without having to, to work or even, you know, pay Bob Cratchit. And therefore, I think it's really interesting that the, the, the language that Dickens chooses is he has Scrooge says, it's dear old honest Ali Baba. So we've got this chap who has hoarded this wealth in this cave and never told anyone about it. So it's interesting that, that Scrooge ascribes honesty to this character. And it kind of gives us this twisted logic about Scrooge and his miserly ways, because we'd, okay, I guess, generally think of honesty as a positive attribute. Um, and it's sort of one that could be ascribed to Scrooge, because Scrooge never makes a secret of what he's doing or what he's trying to do. So he takes the money, doesn't necessarily lie to get hold of it. Um, but it's the idea that this character who has hoarded wealth through, throughout his whole life in Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves has had such an impact on this kind of young, impressionable mind of, of a schoolboy Scrooge and perhaps gives us this sense of Scrooge's preoccupation with generating wealth that goes on throughout his life. Um, I just think that, you know, that we've got in mean, how many words it's dear, old, honest Ali Baba, six words. And then suddenly we get this whole story open up to us that tells us so much more about Scrooge. Um, that I think is really easy to pass over. I certainly have passed over it in the past in the classroom. So for me, yeah, that that section about the the stories was really interesting, I think. 
mine's kind of similar in terms of something that I've kind of uh, haven't really approached before in the classroom, the idea of the fireplace when Scrooge, uh, just before Scrooge meets Marley's ghost. And, and Dickens talks about how the fireplace was an old one and and he kind of highlights these quaint, he, he writes quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate the scriptures. Um, and he gives us a, a kind of summary of the, the figures that are on those um, tiles. He talks about the Cain's and Abel's, Pharaoh's daughters, uh, Queen of Sheba, angelic messengers, Abraham's, Belshazzar's apostles, hundreds of other figures. And of course, he then kind of sees Marley's face within within those tiles as well. And, and before, I've, I'd kind of always approached that with students as saying, you know, Marley is placed amongst these biblical figures to highlight his importance. And I'd kind of leave it at that. But of course, you know, we're, we're researching for a ready to teach Christmas Carol book. So we wanted to um, to kind of delve into each of those figures, actually, and think about well, well, why has Dickens chosen those? And it's really, really interesting because actually, I think the significance of the figures and the illustrated scriptures around that fireplace really provide insight into who Scrooge and Marley could actually be. So, you know, we talk about each of them in turn in the book. The one that always sticks with me is the, uh, he mentions Belshazzar. He, he talks about, or he could be alluding, I suppose, to Daniel, uh, where the ruler Belshazzar holds a lavish feast for a thousand of his lords and issues commands to bring the golden silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had looted from a temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his princes and, and his wives uh, might drink therein. And the story goes on, but but really it's about this this person who is who worships gold and of course there are echoes of that through through Scrooge and there are echoes of that worship of gold throughout the throughout the novel you know Belle breaks off her engagement to Scrooge because she sees that a golden idol has displaced her you know and that obviously implies that Scrooge's want of more money is is kind of synonymous with this worship of a false god just like we see at this this feast with these golden goblets that have been looted from a temple and then of course that echoes into the Cratchit uh, stave, stave three, um, talks about Bob Cratchit's two tumblers and a custard cup without a handle could hold the hot stuff from the jug as well as golden goblets would have done. And I really like that as a kind of throwback to that moment in stave one where that's referenced around the fireplace. So for me, it's those little gems like that, that you really kind of can, can delve into and actually think there are some connections here. There are some links here and they're kind of undiscovered yeah, little nuggets, I suppose, that we can kind of explore with, with students in the classroom. I think in both those examples as well, there's a, there's a degree of intertextuality in both of them, isn't there? You know, allusions to other works of, of literature or, you know, or, or fables or cultures. And I think that's that's fascinating. And is that something that your students respond well to when you cover those issues with them yourselves? Definitely, yeah. I think what it, it's really highlighted to us, particularly with those uh, figures around the fireplace, is... Um, being aware of actually what intertextual references students will actually understand and be familiar with. So biblical references in particular, you know, it's very prevalent in Macbeth and in A Christmas Carol. And it's about trying to find opportunities for students to understand the origins of the original stories in order to illuminate, I guess, their understanding of the text they're now reading. But they do seem to, to really enjoy they feel clever, don't they, I think, finding those links between texts they're reading now and other texts that they might be familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also helps to kind of challenge that perception that A Christmas Carol isn't very challenging. There's there's lots of kind of discussion with, uh, you know, between English teachers about what 19th century texts they teach. And and a kind of a, a view that constantly is repeated is that teachers would choose Jekyll and Hyde over A Christmas Carol because Jekyll and Hyde is seen as the more challenging one. And, and that's the one they want to use to push students with. But the challenge in A Christmas Carol is absolutely 
absolutely there. And I think it's found through moments like this um, that aren't always perhaps obvious on a first reading, but it's really something you can delve into with the students to, to really kind of push them to find that challenge and to engage with that challenge and, and to have uh, and to form their own opinions, I suppose, on that challenge as well. I think that's a really good point. I've heard that same argument made before about a Christmas Carol, and I think that's I think it's a really good argument, isn't it, for opting for that text and then finding those nuggets as as you've described them there. And I, th- I think those two those two examples you've given are just that. So thank you so much for sharing. Really, really interesting. I wonder, you know, as English teachers, oftentimes we sort of talk about the key stage four curriculum as being quite traditional, quite canon heavy, and whilst there is arguably truth to this, those canonical texts often do serve a number of purposes, don't they? And I just wondered, after having poured all this work and research into your book, I'm I'm interested to know, why do you think now Christmas Carol is such a seminal piece of literature for our young people? And what are some of those big ideas that students can study and consider from the text? That's a great question, because one thing we really grappled with whilst writing this is there's arguably lots about Dickens, which is problematic. You know, his presentation of In A Christmas Carol, his presentation of disability is is really challenging. Um, his presentation of various religions in a number of his texts are really challenging. I think um, it's something we talked about a lot. Um, you know, he wasn't perfect. He's got there's there's much that's problematic in his in his work um and he's actually also extremely fallible in his personal life uh, in lots of different ways if you kind of ever read a biography of dickens but i think the thing that we kept coming back to time and time again and the thing that i think keeps this relevant in schools and why we still teach it is because of the the kind of ideas around social responsibility that that dickens writes about and i'm i'm going to just quote a little bit here so dickens also left lots of letters And he wrote a letter to his friend Wilkie Collins in in 1858. And he said the following, and I think this this really echoes Scrooge's own situation. Um, He said, "Uh, everything that happens, everybody that comes near, every breath of human interest shows beyond any mistake that you can't shut out the world, that you are in it, to be of it, that you get yourself into a false position the moment you try to sever yourself from it, that you must mingle with it and make the best of it and make the best of yourself into the bargain. And I think, you know, what Dickens is saying there and what he says through the novella is that firstly, it's never too late to make a change and to become a part of the world and to, in, and to instigate a change for good. But I think in the context in which we wrote Ready to Teach a Christmas Carol and the context in which we're all still teaching, uh, one that is kind of post lockdown, is that in a society where I think lots of people have, because we we had to kind of close themselves off from the world a little bit. It's that message about opening yourself up and being part of a, a bigger thing and a broader community, which I think is enormously important for our young people. Um, and for me, that is the biggest big idea um, that I think is important students understand about this text. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, you know, just going off the back of the the letter that um, or the extract from the letter that Amy just read, you know, I think when you strip everything away and, and I would say the same thing about an inspector calls as well, you know, another of the, the um, GCSE set texts. Really, if you think about it, you know, A Christmas Carol is really about this idea of belonging and and Scrooge trying to find where he belongs in this world. And I think Amy's exactly right. You know, I think in a world where we had had to shut ourselves away um, and then re-emerge, we had to kind of almost find where we belonged in that world. And I think our students are still very much going through that process, um, you know, trying to adapt to a world post-COVID um, where you know, if every um, 
everything they could have engaged with was taken away from them. Um, the world kind of shut down and, and then opened up again. And, and that's a huge change for anyone. Um, but someone, a young person who's kind of grappling with their place in the world anyway, um, that's that's hugely kind of challenging for them. And I think the same thing is is true of, of Scrooge. He has shut his door for so long that when his door opens again, he's he's really got to to kind of find out where he belongs. So for me, it's that that idea of belonging, I suppose, which is the one thing that I really want my students to 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 think about and and to discuss. That's really really interesting. Thank you again. Last time you were with us on the podcast we heard from both of you about a teacher who inspired each of you when you were students yourselves just to continue that appreciation for those who have helped to shape us this time i wondered is there a colleague or perhaps a teacher a mentor or leader who's particularly inspired you as an adult working in education who might that be if so oh that's a great question because I think we all become patchworks don't we of teachers that we've worked with and leaders that we've worked with I think I think so before I was a teacher I worked in in higher education doing outreach work with with school students and at the time I really enjoyed the job um, but I was finding that I was I was driving really long distances staying away from home a lot to to do kind of an hour or an hour and a half's work with students and I kept trying to think and find a path that would mean that I could spend more time working in a longer term capacity with a group of students um, to see the kind of um, progress, I guess, and the outcomes that they they achieve. And I think I'll, I'll talk about uh, the series Educating Essex. So I actually submitted my PGCE application on the night that the final episode of Educating Essex aired, because looking at leaders like Vic Goddard, um, who I think still is the head teacher at Passmore's Academy, made me realise as hard as teaching is so much of the time, the power and the impact that teachers can have on the lives of the students they work with. There was no doubt in my mind, having watched that series, that that was what I wanted to to do with my career and with my adult life. So, you know, Vic Goddard, absolutely, from Educating Essex. Um, but I think those those series have done a lot to support the the reality and the truth of what it means to work in education in these times and yeah I think I'll always be grateful to those shows because I, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for the insight that those kinds of programs gave me back at the the very start. I love those shows they need to bring those shows back. <laughs> yeah, they? They do. Um, yeah they do they really do. <laughs> for, for me it was it was a little bit different you know I, I had teachers who kind of really inspired me at school you know I talked about Miss Cook in the last podcast she was my year six teacher she loved Shakespeare she loved drama yeah, and she loved Macbeth as well. I remember Macbeth was her her favourite play. In terms of like getting me into teaching, it didn't really work out that way for me. I think it was just something that I decided one day that I'd like to have a go at, if if that kind of makes sense. And I, and I did the research and applied for my PGCE. And you know, I know like loads of teachers who said, oh, you know, my English teacher at school really inspired me to then be an English teacher, and it it didn't really work that way for me. I'm thinking about people who inspire me now. I think you know, loads of people. I mean, you, you know, I scroll through Twitter every day. Twitter has its bad points, but it also has some really, really good things about it. And, you know, just the ideas and the the kind of discussion that happens on there, I think that's kind of what inspires me. And, you know, I see what other people are doing in other schools and I think that's really good and, and I want to get better at that. And, and I'm going to get better at that um, or work hard to get better at that because of kind of what I've seen is, is happening kind of elsewhere. So not necessarily kind of one person but a, a collection of educators who are on the ground kind of doing it every single day yeah i think that that's kind of what inspires me um and and allows me to to kind of do what i do every day hopefully to the to the best of my ability 
think we may have come full circle back onto belonging again <laughs> belonging <laughs> <Yeah>. community <laughs> through twitter that, that's really interesting thank you both so much actually whilst we're on twitter and other platforms where could our listeners find you online so um i tweet at teach owls um and i have a, a blog which is, is slightly uh I need to, to get back on there. I've got a blog half written at the moment that I need to post, actually, which is um, at thingsshetaught.wordpress.com. And I'm also on Twitter. Spend far too much time on there. I'm at sprike2, and I, I write about one blog a year. Um, so I don't necessarily know if you can really find me there, but if, if anyone's interested, I blog at englishteachersnotebook.blogspot.com. Brilliant. Look them up now if you haven't already. You're crazy. Um, they're absolutely brilliant and so much insight, not just around A Christmas Carol and Macbeth, but education, the English world generally. I do have one more question and you may have seen this coming. Ready to teach Macbeth, ready to teach A Christmas Carol. Will there be a third? Well, yes. Yeah, there will. There'll be Ready to Teach uh, Romeo and Juliet is the next Ready to Teach title that we'll be working on. But Stuart, I don't know if you want to share uh, what we're actually working on currently. Yeah, so we thought we'd do uh, something different because the Ready to Teach books, Macbeth took a year, Christmas Carol took a year and a half. And we thought, let's just kind of give ourselves a break from from that research for a little bit. So we're actually kind of turning our attention to students and we're working on something at the moment called 100 for 100 Macbeth. And the, the kind of general premise of that is 100 days and 100 revision activities for students sitting their exams. So it's not necessarily a book that is going to uh, teach students the text, but it is going to uh, kind of help them to revise it. And each each day is going to have uh, a 15 minute short activity for them to revise aspects of the plot, the character, the themes, quotations. And then we also have a, a kind of want to go beyond your 15 minute section as well which is going to kind of help kind of push those students who, who want to do a bit extra. So we're really, we're really excited about it. It's something different for us because we haven't, you know, we, we write for students every day, I suppose, in terms of our resources. But, you know, we haven't kind of written a, a book for students. So, um, yeah, we're, we're really excited about it. Yes, we are. We Actually, this is the first time we've spoken about it with anybody kind of outside of John Cat or sort of between ourselves. So, yeah, we're really excited that that will be out later this year. You heard it here first. That is amazing. So not only are we getting another Register Teach book on Romeo and Juliet, which is really exciting, we're also getting this amazing resource for students as well. That is brilliant. And again, the best way for people to keep up to date with those releases, I suppose, is social media. Yes, absolutely. We will tweet about it, I'm sure, and do many retweets um, and bore people with it all. But yeah, it's the best way to, to kind of get the news out there. That's really exciting. Thank you so much, guys. You're very welcome. Ready to Teach A Christmas Carol, a compendium of subject knowledge, resources and pedagogy by Stuart Pryke and Amy Staniforth and published by John Catt is available now online and from all good bookshops. Want to improve your or your team's subject knowledge around this text? You really can't do better than this book. It's a must own for English teachers out there. And Amy and Stuart, it has been a delight as always. Will you come back on again soon? Oh, if you if you have us, but if you invite us on, we absolutely will. Yeah, absolutely. Then we're really lucky. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. This was Harrison Conversation. My name is Ollie Blagden. You can find the Harris English Consultants on Twitter at HFED English. If you haven't already, check out our other teaching and learning and research interviews at anchor.fm forward slash Harrison Conversation. 
and our latest subject knowledge podcast for students at anchor.fm forward slash learning with Harris. You can find both podcasts on Spotify. Join us soon for our next interview. And until then, take care.